And if you would, let me encourage you to take out your copy of God's Word and uh, open up to the book of John. You can start in that very last verse, the very last, uh, second to last chapter, John chapter 20 is where we're going to be today. And, uh, <clears throat> and as you're turning, I want you to just to think about a couple of things. And the first is this, if you think about it, every faith system, whether it's Christianity, whether it's Islam, whether it's Judaism, whether it's Buddhism, whether it's Hinduism, even atheism, every faith system or lack of faith system has a sort of, has a need for an apologetic. Some would say that apologetics are geared more to reinforce the faith of those who believe, and others would say that apologetics are designed to bring reasonable arguments to convince unbelievers of their need for faith. Ultimately, as Christians, we believe that it is God who, through the Holy Spirit, draws people to Him. And, but I believe that with the work of the Holy Spirit, Without the work of the Holy Spirit, even the best arguments, even the best apologetics fall flat because we desperately need the work of the Spirit in our lives in order for us to understand what it is He's doing. But with the Holy Spirit, apologetics become tools that can be used to win even the most ardent opponent. Over the last month or so, I've had a few opportunities to experience the value of some form of apologetics, some argument, not, not so much an argument to win a debate, but an argument, a line of thinking to help us think logically and think biblically, think scripturally about some things. The first happened when I was in the Middle East. Um, as you guys know, last month I got to spend time with with Eric and Lynn Bass and some other folks. And, and God had ordained an opportunity for us to be around a campfire with some locals, some, some people from that country, and they happen to be from a Muslim background. And, and one of the joys that we had was just that opportunity to share food together. We shared our food. They shared their food. And we just got to enjoy fellowship. And then there was the whole mix of rock climbing. And so when someone's life is in your hands, you have a whole lot better opportunity to talk about important spiritual things around the campfire. Well, late one night, we, we had been talking about uh, around the campfire. We talked around, about Abraham and, and Isaac and God's covenant-keeping power, God's covenant-keeping ways. And, and one of the things that happened then later on as we were sitting with, with our, our new Muslim friends, we just began to talk. And, and our friend brought up, hey, we, we believe in Abraham too. We believe the story a little bit different than you do. And so I had a chance, we all had a chance to ask him questions and, and he asked us questions. And it was this beautiful back and forth, helping us understand the misconceptions that we might have in each other's faiths. And then at one point in time, God opened up this door for us to be able to share the gospel, starting with our point of commonality and going all the way through to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, helping him see that it's not us fulfilling our obligations to God, but it's God who has been constantly keeping his covenant, his promises to people. 
But the other apologetic experience that I've had is really not so much been an experience has been in a, a learning opportunity. And that is um, through this book entitled Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. It's by a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin. And in it, Rebecca, she has a, a Ph.D. in literature. She's got a seminary degree. She's a big thinker. And she spends a lot of time around some very smart people at MIT And throughout her book, she uses a variety of arguments and lines of reason to address questions or objections that people have raised about Christianity. I found the book quite informative and educational. In fact, there's a few books, a few copies of this out in the book nook if you want to want to grab one. It is well worth the read. And I want to encourage you, if you are on the fence about this whole Christianity thing, if you're thinking, man, I don't know that I want to believe all that. Let me encourage you to grab one because what Rebecca does is she very carefully answers questions that people have questions like, um, well, isn't, you know, don't science and Christianity counter each other? Can the two coexist? And a whole variety of other questions that she brings up. But I want to encourage you too, if you're already firm in your faith, You might find that this book, like me, has helped me think through some things differently than I would have. You see, I came to faith as a small child, and so this is all I've known. Some of the questions that she raises, I've never personally wrestled with. But knowing that other people do it, it can help provide some some good tools for us in our faith, in our conversations with those that God brings in our way. And I bring all that up because as we start our study in the Gospel of John, we're going to spend most of this year studying the book of John together. But as we start this study, we're going to begin with the end in mind. Stephen Covey would be so happy with us. We're going to begin with the end in mind because near the end of his Gospel, John clearly delineates the purpose for his account of the life of Jesus. So if, if you have your copy of God, God's Word and want to look there, John 20, 30 to 31, it'll be on the screen as well. And I, I know Brian read that a few minutes ago. But John 20, 30 to 31, John, uh, John gives us his purpose. And he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So it's almost as though here in the second to last chapter of his book, he's finally getting to the point. He's finally telling us the why to all of the what that he has been communicating. And we're going to study the what over the next several months. But I think for today, one of the important things for us to do is to, to, to take note of three practical observations that we can make from this text in light of what John has written there. So if you want to take notes, if you want to follow along in, in your outline, if you're that kind of person and want to do that, feel free. But the first thing that we're going to really, cons- really think about is that John is calling us to consider the signs. He is calling us to, to pay attention. You see, John, like the other gospel writers, he, he made a selective group. He took selections from Jesus' life. 
And he wrote that down specifically for a purpose. Each gospel writer presents Jesus in a little bit of a different way. We were, the middle schoolers and I were talking about that this morning. We were talking about a, a little bit how Matthew has one view. In fact, Matthew presents Jesus as the, the promised king. Mark kind of shows Jesus as a servant, as this fast-moving, serving person. Luke communicates Jesus from his humanity. He, he, he talks about his compassion, his interaction with other people. He, he brings that out. And John, as he has clearly stated here, seeks to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he does this by choosing sev- several And depending on how you count them, we could see seven specific miracles that Jesus did. And and these miracles or signs, as, as John calls them, we could view those almost like we would view signs on a road trip. You know, when you're driving from here to Florida, you've got a couple of different options. You want to follow the signs to make sure that you're not getting in the easy pass lane at the wrong time or that you're going the right. Well, just as those signs help us navigate down the road, John is using the signs of Jesus' miracles as a means of helping us in our journey of faith. And so let's briefly consider the signs. And as we do this, we're going to look at the seven miracles, the seven signs that John points out. And as we look at each of them, we're going to consider the nature of the sign, what is made up in this. We're also going to consider the people that were impacted and what is the outcome. We're going to look at all of those this way. So the first one is this, and you can see it in your notes, changing the water into wine. And this is in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Jesus, his mother, and his disciples end up in the town of Cana and in the northern part of Israel near Galilee. And they were invited to a wedding. And all of us, as, as can happen, plans run amok and, and the, the master of ceremonies finds that they have run out of wine. And Jesus' mom learns about this and she goes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And Jesus kind of, we're not going to dive into this a lot now, but Jesus kind of gives, gives her a weird response. She says, woman, why are you telling me this? My time has not come. But then she goes to the servants because she knows her son. And she says, hey. Do whatever he tells you to. So all these servants go to Jesus, and and the the scripture says that there were six water jars that were used for purification rites. And these things were like 20 or 30 gallons worth. They would hold that much. So he tells the servants, he said, go fill all these up. And, and, you know, those, those things would weigh a ton being stone pots. And then you add water, and these are huge things. So they fill them all up to the brim, and they t- he, Jesus tells the servants, he says, take a little bit to the master of ceremonies. And she, the, the servants dip the thing, dip a ladle in it and take it over to the master of ceremonies. He drinks it, and he says, wow. See, normally people save the, the, best, the worst wine for the end when everybody's drunk, and they don't care what it tastes like. They just want more. But you, oh, groom, he's going talking to the wedding party now. You've saved the best for last. He didn't know that guy, the master of ceremonies, didn't know where this came from. But the servants knew and the disciples knew. And so let's think about the nature of the sign. Jesus takes one kind of liquid, water, and, and turns it into another kind of liquid. Now, if you've ever studied winemaking, you know that wine isn't just made overnight. It's not like you can mix powder and you go from water to Kool-Aid, right? It takes months And yet Jesus, in an instant, 
took what would have happened, taken months to do and fermenting and all that processing, all that kind of stuff. And in an instant, he makes normal water into the best wine they had at the ceremony. But who was impacted? Obviously, there were a lot of people at the wedding and all those people received the blessing of this great wine. But they didn't know where it came from. They didn't care. And I'm guessing it would have been a lot of people because if you have six 20 or 30 gallon jars of wine, that is a ton of wine, almost literally a ton of wine. And, and it's gonna, you better have a lot of people if you're going to have that much. But I think the other thing that's interesting is that you have all of those servants. Imagine being one of those guys who, who went to the water source and took a ladle and filled it in this thing, and they're going back and forth. Who knows how long it took them to do that? And then to know that they, this last ladle that was given to the master of ceremonies was completely different than what they put in there. But also the disciples were paying attention to that. In fact, the outcome that we see in, in John chapter 2, verse 11, is that this is the first of his signs that he did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And so here's the outcome. His disciples believed in him. In the next sign that we see is a couple chapters later in John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. Jesus heals the official son. And rather than summarizing it, let me just read this for us. If you want to turn there in your, in your Bibles, you can, or you can, it may be on the screen. But in John 4, 46, it says, So he came to again to Cana, that same place where he had made the water into wine. And at, and at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And went on his way, and as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to to him yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. He himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Yeah, there's a ton that we could really unpack there, but I want you to think about this. Think about the nature of this sign. Jesus is 20, some 20 miles away in Cana from Capernaum where this dying boy is. The father feared for his son's life, and he knew that it was desperate that he'd get some help. And so Jesus, at his spoken word, healed him from a distance, brought him back from what seemed like it would would be his last sickness. The people who were impacted, obviously the official, and the Bible says his entire household. Potentially the disciples were there if, if they were hanging close. But look at the outcome. Consider the outcome. John confirmed that the official and his entire house believed Because of this sign, because of this miracle. In the next chapter, we find another instance where Jesus heals an invalid, heals someone who'd been crippled for some 38 years. 
In John 5, 1 to 15, we're not going to read the whole thing, but let me just summarize it for us. He, this man used to be placed on a mat by this water, and, and the water would boil or ruffle or something, ripple. And the first, they believed that the first person in the water, when the, the spirit, they thought, would move the water, would be healed. Well, that man could never get there because he was invalid. He, he was crippled. And so Jesus came to him and he said, hey, man, do you want to be healed? And he said, yeah, how can I? Everyone else beats me into the water before I can get there. And Jesus said, get up, take up your mat and walk. Now think about this, the nature of this sign. Jesus takes a man whose legs had not worked for 38 years. Have you ever had that moment? You know, maybe you're sitting watching TV or you do the whole crisscross applesauce and your feet fall asleep and you know how hard it is to move. Well, imagine being that way for 38 years. Your muscles have completely atrophied. All of the joints are not working right. This man had no ability to move all that. And in an instant, at the word of his mouth, Jesus told him to get up. Everything strengthened. Everything worked right. All the blood was flowing properly. He got up, got his mat and walked. So think about this. The man was among the people who were impacted. There may have been other people who were laying around there waiting for the pool to, become, uh, to, to begin to bubble or begin to move. But also the Bible tells us that some of the religious leaders were threatened. They were impacted, but not toward belief. They were impacted because they were threatened by Jesus' power. And this, John doesn't give us any uh, direct outcomes or signs of belief other than the fact that this man believed that Jesus could do this. But we learn in the next chapter that people began to see the signs and began to follow Jesus. We see that in chapter 15, verse 2. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 2. But on the negative side, because this became more public, Jesus actually did this on a Sabbath. And this is one of many times that Jesus healed people on the day of rest. It would be like on, you know, people are typically expected not to work on Sundays. Well, it was that way for them on Saturdays. And Jesus would heal these people and all the, all the religious leaders were like, wait, you, there are six other days of the week to heal people. Don't do it on Saturday. And Jesus was like, this is the best day of the week to do it. And it started these major controversies with him. But this sign led to the next one in John chapter 6, verses 1 to 14, where Jesus had an opportunity to feed a multitude. You see, all the signs that Jesus was doing, now multiple people, all these, a couple thousand people were beginning to follow him. They wanted to see what this man would do. They wanted to hear what he would say. And so they find themselves up around Galilee, and it's around Passover time. And Jesus turns to his disciples and say, we have all these people here. How are we going to feed them? And they empty out their pockets. And one guy says, hey, 200 denarii, which is all I have, wouldn't we, I think, I'm, I'm reading into that, but 200 denarii wouldn't give these guys hardly anything. And one other guy says, hey, here's a kid's lunch, a couple loaves of fish, couple, or a couple fish, a couple loaves of bread. And Jesus said, okay, have them sit down. He gave thanks for it and began to break it. And he broke it and 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 fed 5,000 people. And then at the end, after everybody had enough, it's like the never-ending buffet line and you never get full. Oh, what a joy that would be. But, you know, everybody had as much as they wanted. And, and Jesus told his disciples, hey, go 
pick up all the leftovers. And they pick up 12 baskets full. How many disciples are there? 12. Just enough for them. Hmm, interesting. Um, we'll, we'll think about that in another time. But think about this. Think about the nature of the sign. Jesus takes a small thing and, and multiplies it to feed what would be enough for one, maybe two people now is enough for over 5,000. Imagine being one of those disciples and you're watching this, just, this food just continue coming and keep coming and keep coming. And then you see the, the, the people who, who have eaten this. All these people were impacted by that. Then John tells us a bit of the outcome in John six fourteen. He says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. You see, it appears that they were beginning to believe, they were beginning to see that Jesus was more than just some Nazarene. Jesus was more than just some wise dude. He was the anointed one of God. They began to see that. Well, right after this miracle, you know, Jesus was like, hey, you know, they're wanting to make me king and I'm not ready for all that. So he goes up to the mountain. He sends his disciples across the sea. The next miracle in John six sixteen to 21, is Jesus walking on water. John doesn't specifically call this a sign, but as he's up on the mountain praying, he comes down and they've already gone and there's a storm. They've been buffeted. They can't get back to land anywhere. And Jesus starts walking to them on the water. The nature of that sign, Jesus seemed to demonstrate his ability to control matter he had this ability to 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 make what wouldn't wouldn't hold his body up hold his body up later on people realized that it was only the disciples that got into the boat and they wondered how did jesus get to the other side and and so all these other people began to be impacted including the disciples who were in the boat and frankly they were scared out of their minds And this miracle, along with the feeding of the 5,000, created an opportunity for Jesus to engage the crowd and some religious leaders in conversation. And the crowd seemed to believe, expressing the belief that, uh, expressing that belief by the intention to do the works of God. They were saying, yes, we believe and we want to be obedient to what God has called us to. And yet the religious leaders were even more confused. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. A couple chapters later, we get to see another sign where Jesus heals a man who was born blind. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. And in this one, it actually begins with a question in verses 1 through 3, 1 through 3 of chapter 9. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned or his parents. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so Jesus spit on the ground and made some mud and put it on his eyes. And he told him to go wash. And immediately he was healed. And this sparked another controversy. Because he told him to go show himself to the, the priests and, and or, or to the religious leaders. And, and they began to question. They began to recognize. And other people were saying, hey, isn't, the blind, isn't that the guy who used to beg on the side of the road? He would beg outside the temple, and yet now he sees what's going on. But think about the nature of this sign. He brought complete healing 
to something that never worked. I have a friend who's been blind since she was a teenager. She had a tumor similar to, to Danielle's sister, Teresa, on one of her optic nerves. And when they removed it, she lost her ability to see. All she sees is people like trees and shadows. She sees a little light and a little dark, but that's it. But in this case, this guy's eyes never worked. And apparently, it was a, other people were able to see that. They were able to see that this doesn't, what, what's just, wasn't just like glaucoma or, or something else. He had never been able to see. Jesus, the, you know, just, uh, think about the nature of that. Maybe his optic nerve never connected to his eyeball. And now it is at the spoken word of Jesus. So think about this. The man was impacted. His parents were impacted. The locals could see that healing. The disciples witnessed the healing as well. The man's parents. And then the outcome. John doesn't tell us too much, but we do learn that the man expressed his belief in Jesus. And he defended that healing in front of the religious leaders. And he told them, hey, I don't know who this guy is. But what I do know, I was blind, and now I see. I've been changed. And there's one final sign that John presents, and that is in chapter 11, verses 1 to 44, the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead for four days. Jesus was far away. And Jesus shows up and he has conversations with his sisters and expresses his compassion for them. And then he verbally, outside the tomb, tells them, take the stone away. And he calls Lazarus to come out. And everyone's objecting. They're saying, wait, 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 wait. it's going to stink. He's been in there four days. They didn't, he's starting to decay. It's just not, don't do this. And Jesus, ignoring their objections said, Lazarus, come out. Think about this. The nature of this sign. He brought life back to something that was dead. He reversed decay. And think about the people who were impacted. Obviously, Lazarus was greatly impacted by this. It would be interesting in heaven to talk to Lazarus. What was it like being dead and alive and then well, now you're dead again and in, in eternity. But his sisters and the whole community, it's, the Bible says that tons of Jews in that area began to believe in Jesus. But it also says that the religious leaders were threatened by Jesus even more. In fact, now that he had this dead man walking, dead man alive again, they wanted to not only kill Jesus, they needed to get rid of Lazarus too. So they wanted to make him all dead Totally. And John tells us that, um, like I said, several of the locals began to believe. But notice, all of these miracles, starting with changing water into wine, through the, the resurrection of Lazarus, John seems to be showing this escalation of the importance of the impact of these miracles, of these signs. It's as though he's leading to a climax. Because there is an eighth sign. And that is the sign that we're going to celebrate in a few minutes as we consider the Lord's Supper. Because that final sign is Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. And John chose each of these miracles and he seemed to do so specifically. 
And in the process, he notes at various times where people began to express their belief in him. And then think, get, let's get back to our, our verse for the day. John twenty thirty one. But these, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So not only are we challenged to consider the signs, but we are challenged. The next outcome that John wants us to have, we are challenged to believe in Jesus. You know, so many people want to say these days that it doesn't matter what you believe. Is you just have to believe something and believe it with all your heart. Well, if I'm believing in the wrong thing, then my belief is misplaced. John is not calling for just some random or vague belief. He's very specific. He's leading toward a belief that is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with this title, Christ or Messiah, the Anointed One of God. But let's think about this idea of belief. What does it mean to believe? That word believe shows up some 54 times throughout John's book. It is, it is a major reason why John wrote the book. And throughout it, believe, believe, believe. The Greek word that gets translated as believe into English essentially means to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance, to have faith in, to trust. Another way to think about this is to end trust, especially in one's um, spiritual well-being, to believe or to commit, to trust with. Think about this. As I think about, you know, we don't use... We, don't use, we believe someone might be saying, telling the truth or not telling the truth. We might believe the news or we might not believe the news. But this entrusting is something different. It almost has this financial connotation. Think about this. If, if Lauren, if you had $100 and you, didn't, you were afraid you might spend it because we know how much you like to go to McDonald's. So you say, I need to put this in the bank. And so Lauren researches and figures out, oh, this is the best bank. So she goes to the bank and she opens up a bank account and she entrusts her $100 with the bank in hopes that they're going to keep it safe, that she won't spend it, and they might even give her a little tiny return on that, right, when she's ready to have it out. That idea is the same thing that we have with this believe, with entrusting believing in Jesus, you might say that, well, I believe that Jesus was a real person. Historians have told us, yeah, Jesus was real. He existed just as much as Pete Horsley is real and exists just as much as people that we've known in our past. President Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Christopher Columbus. We know these people are historical people or present people. Jesus was real in that way. But it's not so much, not, John has been arguing, not that we just believe that he exists, but that we would believe in him as the Son of God, in him as the Messiah. So how do we do that? Because we can't just take ourselves and say, okay, Jesus, here I am. Now my life is your. I mean, how, what does that look? It's not like we can take Lauren's money and put it in the bank. We can't put ourselves in Jesus in that way. We can't write, our, write a little note that says, 
Now I am Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I'm entrusted with it. But yet spiritually, that is what happens when we are entrusting ourselves to him. You see, the bank will never know that I trust them with my money until I entrust them with it. I can tell them I believe it, but I better back it up by being able to do that. The same thing with Jesus. There's a a verse, I don't have the exact reference, but it says that even the demons believe in Jesus and tremble. But their belief is something different. They believe and know that he is the son of God. He has the ability to judge them. And they know that their fate is doomed because of their choices. But will we trust him? Will we entrust our lives to him, our eternity to him? Will we believe not only in who he is, but that what he did on the cross was sufficient to allow us to be with him for eternity? Think back for a moment over these signs. Who else can do the things that Jesus did? You see, doctors today, they can use medicine and they can use a whole lot of technology to bring about some sort of healing sometimes. But Jesus did it immediately. And many times doctors will take years to bring healing to someone. Doctors can correct failing vision. I'm, I'm grateful for Tom and Robin because my eyesight is about this good. I can't see, I can't see actually this without my contacts. I'm grateful that there's that technology there. But Jesus gave sight immediately. He made sight happen that never worked. Magicians might be able to use trickery and smoke and mirrors to make us believe in illusion. But Jesus actually multiplied food and fed 5,000 people. He actually turned water into wine, bypassing months of a fermenting and, and mixing process. You see, other people tasted it. Other people verified. And frankly, they called it good. EMTs are able to bring someone back from the brink of death. Maybe after even being dead, we hear stories about people who've been dead for a minute or two, but four days? Who does that? You could talk to Will afterwards what someone's body is like after a few days. He knows very well. I don't. Jesus reversed decay, restored brain function, brought life back. And what's more is that all these were verified by multiple people. So John is not the lone witness. So then it raises another question. What is the value of believing? John's argument is that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John's hope is that we will consider the signs that Jesus performed in order to believe so that we will live. So that we will live. And at face value, it seems like believing and living have nothing to do with each other. You know, if you don't consider, um, if you don't consider yourself a believer yet or a follower of Christ, you might think, I'm already alive, so why should I believe? What's the value in believing? I'm, I exist. I live. But I think it's important for us to understand John's, the nuance of what John is getting at here. Because we've mentioned this before. There are two Greek words that we, that are used in scripture and in general ancient Greek 
for life. One is the word bios, and it it basically means existence or livelihood. So you and I, we all have bios. If you're breathing, you have bios. A plant has bios. Not these plants because they're fake. But a plant, a dog has bios. A bird has bios. Everything that's around us that is alive has bios. You were born with bios. And John's hope is that by believing, you will truly live. Which is why throughout his gospel, the only word for life that he uses is zoe. In fact, he uses it 57 times. So what? What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. If you were to look through John's gospel and study this a bit more, we would see that he generally means one of two kinds of life. The first one is abundant life. John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that that they might have life and have it abundantly. We might see this as life that has purpose and meaning, a life that is lived according to its maker's design. Think back to that book that I mentioned at the beginning, Confronting Christianity. One of the things that the author points out in her conversation in the chapter on science and Christianity is that in so many of her, her studies and research and conversations with atheists, atheists, because they don't believe there's a reason for us to exist, there is no great purpose to us. We are just a big bag of cells. There's no morality. There's no reason for you or I to do anything. We just exist. We're just, and yet for, they, they can't get past the idea that we've been endowed with something unique. But, but I think when we come to realize that our lives are designed, even our bios is designed by a creator, There is an immediate value placed on us. We have a higher purpose for which we are living. And then when we begin believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross, he performed these signs to to help us believe in him. Now we get to see that we have meaningful life. We exist for something. We exist to make a difference in the world around us. We exist to proclaim the good news of why he came to our family members, to our friends, to our neighbors. We exist to live differently. We get to live for his glory. But there's a second kind of life of Zoe that John refers to. And that is eternal life. Eternal life. In John 6, 40, he says, he, uh, Jesus, he's, quote, he's quoting Jesus here, and Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Rick Warren years ago wrote a very famous book entitled The Purpose Driven Life. And one of the things that Rick says is that our life here is practice or a preparation, a prelude for eternity. And his argument is that we're, our 80, 90, 100 years that we might live here on earth is a blink of an eye compared to the life that we have in eternity. The scripture notes that those who believe in what Jesus did on the cross will enjoy eternal life. One of the Bible dictionaries says it this way. It says, it, eternal life, comprises the whole future of the redeemed and is opposed to eternal punishment. It is the final reward and the glory into which the children of God will enter. It is their Sabbath rest. 
And it continues, the life of the faithful or of believers, the life that the faithful or believers have here on earth is inseparably connected with the eternal life beyond, the endless life of the future and the happy future of the saints in heaven. So one of the things over the next couple months as we continue looking at the book of John, we're going to have this purpose of his gospel in mind. He wrote these things specifically so that we would believe and that 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 belief would lead toward life. So the question I have for you is, do you believe? Have you entrusted in Jesus as your Savior? Do you see those signs and recognize that Jesus was not just some magical person? He is is the Son of God, the Messiah. So if you don't yet believe, let me encourage you to call on Him. Repent of your sin. Recognize that there is this barrier called sin in your life. And trust that Jesus is covered your sin on the cross and if you don't understand what that means let me encourage you to talk to someone around you or talk to me after church i'll be happy to help you understand that more but if you are a follower of christ if you already believe i want to ask you are you living in that abundant life are you fully alive by faith now i'm not talking about living your best life now I'm talking about a life of compassion, a life of mercy, a life of humility, grace, love, hospitality, of devotion. Living life the way that Jesus, living the life that Jesus saved you to live. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your word in this time. Thank you for these signs that John chose for us to be able to walk in them. And God, I pray that you would help us to believe. Lord, for those who may not yet fully believe, I pray that you would give them strength to do so. Give them the faith to believe. Help them, we pray. Help us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.